This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy for obstructive sleep apnea, anesthetic considerations, by Dr. Denise Chan. Hello, my name is Denise Chan, and I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist at Boston Children's Hospital. Today I'll be discussing important aspects of taking care of children with obstructive sleep apnea syndrome in the perioperative setting. Introduction now first let's define what is obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. Well it's a disorder of breathing during sleep and it's characterized by a few different things according to the American Thoracic Society. First of all these patients have either prolonged upper airway obstruction which is known as obstructive hypopnea or intermittent complete obstruction known as obstructive sleep apnea and this occurs with or without snoring. Second the patient exhibits moderate to severe oxygen desaturation. Third, normal ventilation is disrupted. And fourth, normal sleep patterns are disrupted. So these are the components of obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. Now in children, obstructive sleep apnea syndrome is oftentimes caused by enlarged adenoid or tonsillar tissue. And you can see in this illustration that the hypertrophied tonsils really do get in the way of normal airflow. So what do you expect to see in a patient with this syndrome? First of all, you'll probably see snoring. They'll have difficulty breathing during sleep, restless sleep, or even nightmares or night terrors. You may see excessive sweating. They may have nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting, mouth breathing, pauses in breathing, or chronic rhinorrhea. More importantly though, what is the significance of having obstructive sleep apnea? And what are the consequences for the patient? Well, there are a number of problems that can occur. Daytime somnolence. Patients have fallen asleep while driving, older patients of course, and this can lead to motor vehicle accidents. Cognitive dysfunction which leads to behavioral problems or problems with work or school performance. Metabolic effects such as insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes mellitus, or metabolic syndrome, or other metabolic effects such as failure to thrive or stunted growth. Or if obstructive sleep apnea is more severe or left untreated, this could lead to cardiovascular morbidity, such as pulmonary or systemic hypertension, core pulmonale, or stroke. Obstructive sleep apnea syndrome can even lead to death, and it's been hypothesized to be a factor contributing to SIDS, or sudden infant death syndrome. Diagnosis and clinical features. In order to diagnose whether or not someone has obstructive sleep apnea, you must first and foremost perform a thorough history and physical exam. A sleep history screening for snoring should be a part of every child's routine healthcare visits, 
it's really unlikely that someone's going to have obstructive sleep apnea if they don't snore. So if a child does snore, ask the parents more details about the sleep history. Does your child have difficulty breathing or stop breathing during sleep? Or are you worried about their breathing at night? Does your child sweat during sleep? Does your child have restless sleep? Does he or she breathe through his mouth while awake? Has anyone in the family had obstructive sleep apnea or sudden infant death syndrome? Or does your child have behavioral problems? When you examine the patient, you may notice certain features that are suggestive of obstructive sleep apnea, such as a small triangular chin, retronathia, a high arched palate or a long soft palate, a long oval face, or of course large tonsils. There are also certain patients who are at high risk for having obstructive sleep apnea. And these are patients with obesity, Down syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, certain neuromuscular disorders, or other neurologic disorders like Chiari malformation and myelomeningocele, or craniofacial anomalies that obstruct the upper airway. Let's just take a moment to compare a few of the features of obstructive sleep apnea in children versus adults. Now you see on this table, there's a couple of characteristics of obstructive sleep apnea in pediatrics versus adults. And there's a few differences you can note. In adults, most of these patients are obese, whereas in kids, they can be underweight, normal weight, or overweight. Kids with obstructive sleep apnea can be hyperactive, whereas adults with obstructive sleep apnea are usually somnolent. You'll see that the treatment also differs between kids and adults. We use CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, in both of these patients' populations. But for surgical treatment, kids usually have a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, whereas adults will have a uvulopallidopharyngoplasty. Now, after you do the history and physical, performing a polysomnography or sleep study can provide even further information. And this can help you differentiate between primary storing and obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. And a sleep study may help quantitate the severity of disease, as well as correlate sleep disruption with symptoms. During the sleep study, we count the number of apneas and hypopneas the patient has each hour. This is known as the apnea hypopnea index. And an apnea is any pause in respiration for two breaths, while a hypopnea is a reduction of airflow by 50% for two respiratory cycles, a decrease in oxygen saturation by 3%, or the patient wakes up from sleep. And an apnea hypopnea index of greater than one is usually used to identify children with obstructive sleep apnea. And this is opposed to an index of five or more in adults. Management. Once we figure out that a patient has obstructive sleep apnea, what are we gonna do for them? I just mentioned continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP because it has a lot of great benefits for patients. It can have local and systemic anti-inflammatory effects. It can restore disrupted sleep patterns. It promotes weight loss in patients who have obesity. It can improve cardiac function and decrease the progression to pulmonary hypertension or core pulmonale. 
CPAP can decrease airway hyperresponsiveness. But it's really difficult to get patients, especially kids, to comply with CPAP. So in children, surgical treatment is often what is needed. In correctly selected patients, a tonsillectomy and or adenoidectomy can really improve the symptoms of sleep disordered breathing and quality of life. Anesthesia and obstructive sleep apnea. Now let's say you'll be performing the anesthetic for a patient undergoing one of these procedures. When you're doing their preoperative evaluation, you know, on these patients having a tonsillectomy and or an adenoidectomy, try to elicit any history that would place your patient at a higher risk for postoperative respiratory complications. This would include age less than three years, severe obstructive sleep apnea, extremes of weight, so failure to thrive, or obesity, especially with a body mass index in the 95th percentile or greater, prematurity, a recent upper respiratory infection. So in these cases, you may choose to reschedule or postpone a surgery. Reactive airway disease, as well as some of the factors we discussed earlier, such as neuromuscular disorders, Down syndrome, and craniofacial abnormalities. You should also inquire about easy bruising or frequent nosebleeds, because this may indicate a hematologic abnormality. And in these patients, or if there's a family history of bleeding problems, consider performing coagulation studies. This should be done on a case-by-case -case basis because not every patient needs coagulation labs checked. Now, when you see them immediately preoperatively, really be careful, use caution when giving pre-medication with benzodiazepines or other sedatives, um, especially to these patients with obstructive sleep apnea and especially if they can't be closely monitored in the preoperative setting, because these are the patients who are gonna be at risk for somnolence and upper airway obstruction. Intraoperatively, patients are maintained under general anesthesia. And most patients, um, because they are pediatric patients, will undergo an inhalation induction. This patient has obstructive sleep apnea and is having an inhalation induction with sevoflurane and nitrous oxide and oxygen. And you can see that there's some degree of upper airway obstruction as the pharyngeal tissues relax and muscle tone decreases. So what you wanna to try to do is give some moderate CPAP, maybe about five to 15 centimeters of water, and jaw thrust. And this can help decrease this upper airway obstruction until the patient is deep enough for oral airway insertion. It's really critical for you to watch your patient closely and ensure that you're relieving their upper airway obstruction so that they can maintain adequate ventilation during this period. After an intravenous line is placed, the airway is intubated under a deep plane of anesthesia. Muscle relaxant is generally not needed. A volatile anesthetic is used for maintenance with or without nitrous oxide. In terms of other medications, antibiotic prophylaxis is usually not needed, but what is helpful is a single dose of intravenous dexamethasone because this may reduce pain and swelling and also acts as postoperative nausea and vomiting prophylaxis. Pain control is achieved by several different methods. Opioids are given intraoperatively with lesser amounts given to patients with moderate or severe obstructive sleep apnea. 
Oral acetaminophen, or paracetamol, is given postoperatively. Oral ibuprofen use is controversial, but as far as we can tell, it doesn't seem to increase the incidence of postoperative bleeding, so some people choose to use it. And always good oral hydration should be encouraged postoperatively because this also helps with pain control. In addition, some surgeons also inject local anesthetic directly into the tonsillar fossae during the case. At the end of the surgery, deep extubation should not be performed for patients with obstructive sleep apnea as they are at risk for airway obstruction as they emerge with an unprotected airway. You don't want to be emergently intubating a patient in the recovery room. After surgery, patients are either discharged home the same day or they can be admitted for observation. Now make sure that the patients who are discharged the same day have no operative bleeding, no upper airway obstruction, and have adequate pain control and control of nausea and vomiting. Here at Boston Children's Hospital, patients are admitted for standard overnight observation if they meet any of these following criteria. Age between two and three years, weight of less than 15 kilograms or below the fifth percentile for their age, an apnea hypopnea index of greater than three on polysomnography, or conditions such as obesity, any airway condition or other medical condition that the patient's care team feels would warrant a standard overnight observation. Or if the patients have a known bleeding disorder or an immediate family member has a known bleeding disorder. Patients who are at higher risk are admitted and observed even more closely with continuous cardiorespiratory monitoring and even placed in the intensive care unit if necessary. This is decided on a case-by-case -case basis. And these could be patients who are less than two years old, are morbidly obese with a body mass index of greater than 30 kilograms per meter square, have severe obstructive sleep apnea with an apnea hypopnea index of greater than 10, or oxygen saturation less than 90%, or carbon dioxide levels greater than 55 millimeters of mercury, or patients who have a neurologic or neuromuscular disorder that predisposes them to an upper airway obstruction, patients who have concurrent cardiac conditions that require electrocardiogram monitoring, patients who have a concurrent pulmonary disorder predisposing them to respiratory compromise, or again, those patients who have conditions such as Down syndrome, dwarfism, or other craniofacial or airway anomalies that predispose them to upper airway obstruction. Before any of these patients are discharged home from the hospital, they should be cautioned to avoid sharp foods and vigorous activity. And that's because post-tonsillectomy bleeding can occur either immediately or seven to 10 days postoperatively as the fibrin clot falls off the tonsillar bed at this time. With post-tonsillectomy bleeding, significant amounts of bleeding can occur, and this may require emergent surgical intervention under general anesthesia. For you, the anesthetist, this means assessing the patient for hemodynamic stability, as these patients can be hypotensive or even in shock. And it means performing a rapid sequence induction with the airway possibly obscured by blood and a lot of blood possibly in the stomach. These can be pretty critical patients. Today we've discussed the diagnosis and management of obstructive sleep apnea syndrome in children. 
I hope this information has been valuable to you, as you will likely care for many of these types of patients in your clinical practice. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.